Hello friends, happy to be with, here with you today. Uh, my name is Angela Rhinus. I'm the Discipleship Coordinator at Harbor Covenant, and I do all things related to small groups. And so I just wanted to take a moment here before I preach to give a little shout out that if you are looking to join a small group, or if you just want to get to know a little bit more about how to make a better connection at Harbor Covenant, I'm your girl, and I'd love to help you out. So you can just shoot me an email at Angela at HarborCove.Church. Well, join me today in hearing from the Word of God. So some of you know that I'm a mom, and I like to talk about my kids when I get to preach. And I'm sorry for those of you that um, don't have kids. I know this can be a little annoying, but I hope that um, as I talk about my kids, that you take it as an opportunity to see some of the bigger picture um, of what God is doing in, in our lives as a church. So my kids like to play basketball, especially my little guy, and he's eight, and he has been looking forward to playing basketball for the last, I don't even know, maybe five years, <laughs> ever since he saw his sister learning how to play. And he was planning on playing, of course, when he was in first grade, which is sort of like the time that the Pinmet Parks here lets kids play. And then what happened, guys, right? Everything got shut down. And last year, there was no basketball because it was an indoor sport. So this year is his year of getting to play. And he's been playing, he's having a blast. My husband is helping coach. And one of the things that I have learned about myself this year in particular from watching my kids play sports is that I am a little bit, shall we say, over the top when it comes to being a sports mom. And this is a little embarrassing considering that my kids are like second grade and seventh grade, right? I'm not, I don't even have kids in high school sports. But as I watched my little guy play basketball, this just even these last few weeks, I realized that I just, I'm kind of annoying that I love to cheer and I love to cheer a little bit too loudly, apparently. And the reason that I found this out is because at the dinner table earlier this week, both my daughter and my son said, mom, your cheering is just a little bit over the top. You can cheer, but here's a few things that you are doing, which are totally embarrassing. And I have to admit that I took this criticism mm, not super well. <laughs> I was like, but guys, I'm, I'm cheering you on. Like, this is, this is what I want to do, and this is what I like to do. And their reaction was like, yeah, but that's not really what we want you to do. Like, we don't feel particularly encouraged or loved by that activity. And it kind of made me pause and think, hmm. So my, my invitation as a mom is to serve my children. And sometimes I want to serve them in the way that I want to serve them and not in the way that they're asking to be served. And so this is just sort of a constant challenge for me. And today we're gonna to be talking about that very thing of what does it mean to serve? What does it mean to, for us to take the lowest spot? So we're in the middle right now, really towards the end of our sermon series on life hacks. And I actually looked up what is a life hack? Because I mean, what does that even really mean? Well, a life hack, this is the definition. It's a trick, a shortcut, a skill or a method that increases productivity and efficiency. And basically what we're talking about right now in this series is not totally about increasing productivity or efficiency, but more what does it mean to live practically in the kingdom of God? And what does Jesus have to say about that? So hopefully today you'll get some ideas about that, of how you can practically take the lowest spot. What does it mean to serve? What does it mean that Jesus serves, to us, serves us? 
So today we're going to be talking about service. We're going to be talking about um, interacting with, with Jesus and asking for things. Um, and I just want to preface this, these verses in the book of Mark that we're going to be in today with a little bit about why I think that this particular passage is important. So one thing that you might know about me, if you've heard me preach or just know me personally, is that I just really love to study scripture. And I love to study all of scripture. I love to study the Old Testament, the New Testament, all the different genres. And the reality is, is that God has spoken to me in really powerful ways, in history books in the Old Testament, in poetry books. Um, guys, even in Leviticus and in the histories of Joshua, have I found truth about God and truth about myself. And that's amazing. But I think one of the, the gifts of the passage today from Mark and really all of the Gospels is that we get to see and be part of a pattern of teaching that Jesus really teaches throughout the Gospels. Okay, so it's not just like a history. Um, it's more than a narrative. The scripture that we're going to look at today is a really important truth that we see woven in throughout the New Testament and the Old. I'm kind of on repeat. Okay, so I, I feel it like it's a light bulb moment, like, oh, this is really, really important. And this is something that is more than historical, that Mark is including it here for us today in our church and our time period today, because it is a key for following Jesus. Well, one of my favorite theologians is a guy named Tom Wright, and he has a podcast that I listen to fairly religiously um, called Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Um, where, where people send out little questions and then he and his co-host kind of go through the questions. And what I really love about Tom Wright is that he's incredibly bright, but he's also incredibly pastoral. So it's a great mix of those two things if you're looking for something like that. And he was talking a little bit about the Gospels. And one of the, one of the issues that we run up against in the Western church, and I've certainly seen this in my life, is um, that we tend to view the Gospels as the appetizer of the meal. <laughs> and we view the letters as like the main course, like the meat. And what Tom Wright was saying in this podcast was that we have it wrong, that really the gospels, that the narratives around Jesus are also the main course, that there is so much meat there for us to take in and to think about. And I would just encourage you to be thinking about that today as we're in the book of Mark, that this is the real meat of the Christian life. Well, so here we are. We're going to be in Mark 10, and here's a little bit about the context of where we are. Um, at this point, we are on the road to Jerusalem, and this is leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And so they, the disciples and his followers and Jesus are on their way, and um, they're on their way to the passion, to the crucifixion. And so here we are in Mark 10. I'm going um, to go ahead and read it, and then I'll give you a little bit of context. So this is verse 32 of Mark 10. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus is predicting his death and his resurrection to his disciples. 
This is the third time um, that he has done this. And if you look back, you'll notice that the history of this is when Jesus kind of prepares them and says this is what's going to happen, that there's basically bickering and disbelief <laughs> that happens around these, um, these times that Jesus says this. And you will see that this time is really no different. So um, just a side note that we do have the luxury of hindsight as we read this story, right? That they do not, that they, they cannot see into the future, but we have the hindsight. And so um, we can kind of see as we hear these disciples talk, like, oh man, they're so ridiculous. But I think if we were to put themselves, ourselves in their position, perhaps we would be a little bit more gracious because we do have the luxury of history. So join me now in verse 35. So this is a bit of the response to Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. So this is James and John. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Hmm, what do you want me to do for you? He asked, and they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in glory. So pretty big ask, right? Pretty big ask. And I'm just going to slip in there the parallel passage in Matthew. So as you probably have figured out, some of these, um, some of these stories are repeated in the Gospels. And Matthew tells it very, very similarly, but just slightly different. And this is what he has to say. <laughs> this was personally convicting for me, and I think you will see why. So here it is, Matthew 20. He's, then it says, Verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it that you want? He asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Okay, so we have these two parallel passages and I think we can get a bigger picture when we meld these together that most likely it was the three of them coming in, um, doing what I would call as a big ask or a big favor <laughs> for Jesus. And we might ask like, well, okay, so why did, they, why did they think that was cool? Like, why did they do that? Because it's obviously not very humble. Well, I think a couple things were at play. Um, one is that I definitely see what I would call as the mama bear instinct, okay? So I'm a mom. And one thing I know about myself is that I tend to kind of want to fight for my kids, right? And I think all moms are a little bit that way. Um, it hints the joke of like, oh, I have a podcast, but, you know, I have one listener and it's my mom. You know, this kind of joke, right? Like, we all kind of know that, um, that moms at our best, like, really love our kids and will do anything. And at our worst, we are a bit like this, a little bit angling, <laughs> maybe, is the word I would use. And... Here's some things that I kind of see as we step back that I think James and John and their mom did right, okay? Because it's easy for us to say, oh, they totally got it wrong. And they did get a lot of things wrong. But here's some things that I think they also got right. Well, the first thing that I see that they got right is that they actually realized that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, obviously their view of the Messiah was mixed up, and we'll talk about that. Um, but they knew that Jesus was going to be king and that he was making a new kingdom. And they knew that they really wanted to be part of that. So they got that right. The second thing they did, um, which 
I don't know, it, it just really struck me, I guess, from, from reading especially the book of John earlier this winter on my own devotional time, that Jesus just really wants us to come to him and ask for things. And they did, guys. <laughs> they asked for something. And I think there was a lot of faith that was demonstrated by their asking. But then the flip side of that is what did they get wrong? And obviously they asked for the wrong thing. Um, but I think maybe even more importantly than that, they asked for the wrong thing for, for the wrong reasons, that their heart was just not in the right place. So we're going to hear a little bit next about how Jesus responded to this big ask. Um, but maybe I'll just put in there too that the reason that they asked for this is um, it was a sign of prestige to be sitting on a king's right and left, right? That makes sense. Okay, verse 38. This is Jesus talking. And he says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those who they have been prepared. And when the ten, meaning the other disciples, heard about this, they became, became indignant with James and John. So I just wanted to flesh this out a little bit because this is a little bit complicated. What does it mean, the cup and the baptism? Well, the cup is a reference to God's wrath in the Old Testament. Um, it's, a, it's a reference to suffering. And Jesus is beginning to allude to them, and I think we saw this, in the, in the previous passage about him talking about his crucifixion, that he is beginning to teach them that he will suffer and die, and that that is the cup that he is prepared to drink. And in terms of baptism, I mean, we, we think of baptism, right, as a sprinkling water or an immersion in water as a sign of faith. Um, in the Old Testament, it really is talking about an identity of, being, of, of suffering, of being drowning in water or being deep in water. Um, is to be baptized in the depths. And so Jesus is yet again referencing his suffering um, that is then and is to come, even more so. And so then he, we move on, and it's pretty clear that James and John, that they just don't have any idea what Jesus is talking about, right? And I mean, I think, I think that makes sense, right? Because this is a whole new concept for them. And I like to think of this as James and John are sort of getting a second chance. So if you look forward to what actually happens with James and John in the future, um, you'll see that what Jesus has to say about them taking the cup and being baptized is more than accurate. So in Acts 12, there's a, just a quick little verse about James, and it says, he had James, and he's talking about King Herod, he had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. Okay, so literally, James is martyred, right, in the book of Acts. And this is an, just an incredible, um, what's, it's incredible answer to what Jesus has predicted here. And then John, we know, lived to be probably in his 90s, but he was not immune to hardship. Um, he was a leader in the early church, which in itself must have been an incredible place of hardship. We know that he was exiled um, at the end of his life, which is where... God gave him the book of Revelation, and he wrote that out. 
And I was just really struck by this little verse that he wrote in the book of Revelation. So this is, this is John, the very person we're talking about, right, in Mark 10, um, but at the end of his life. And this is what he says. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is ours in Jesus. So we see that John and James certainly didn't get it in their younger years, but by the grace of God, they were able to participate in the kingdom in a really significant way, and the older they got, the more they got it, um, which is really encouraging. And I also think it's encouraging to think about that in terms of their mom, that she had no idea what she was asking for. She came in as a heavy hitter asking for a favor, but certainly I feel like while she was a bit rebuked, that perhaps this interaction with Jesus gave her the faith that she needed as she watched her sons be martyred and suffer. Um, that's just a really hard thing to watch as a mom. So I think this, as she looked back, this word was probably really comforting to her. Well, the, they do the big ask. They get the truth of Jesus and get denied, basically. And the disciples hear of this, or they watch it, and they're not happy about it. And they're obviously very self-centered, and there's lots of dissension happening. And this is what Jesus does. He decides that it's a teachable moment, and he brings them together. And this is what he has to say. And we see, we see this just throughout Scripture, that he is pulling aside his disciples and his people that are following him, and that he's using teachable moment after teachable moment, first to teach them the truth about the kingdom, and then after that to demonstrate it. So here we are, verse 42. Jesus called them together, meaning his disciples, and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many people. So in, the, in their Jewish culture, they were under the Roman um, rule right now, and they would be very familiar with the rule of the Gentiles, right? So this is the cultural background for this little piece of scripture, that um, Roman Empire emperors, that Gentile emperors often claimed to be gods, to be worshiped, that they were brutal in the way that they ruled, and um, Jesus is reminding them that they are not to follow this pattern of leadership that they are under, that he has a new rule and a new form of reign for them. And this would have been very significant for them and very radical because he calls on them in this passage to become servants and slaves. And certainly we know that servants and slaves would be very inferior during this time period. So they probably did not even totally understand what he was saying in this moment. Well, Jesus then goes on and he, um, in this passage, and he defines what it looks like to do this. So it's a countercultural thing. It's a radical thing for these disciples and followers of Jesus. Um, but he uses some Old Testament language that they would have most likely known, I think, and helps them to sort of wrap their mind around it, I think. So just a reminder, in verse 45, he says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's sort of what this whole passage revolves around there, is verse 45. And in the midst of them being confused, he is referencing this beautiful piece of scripture in Isaiah 53. 
which is an Old Testament prophecy that would have been hundreds of years prior um, to, to the time that Jesus ministered. And it's a foreshadowing. Isaiah 53 is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. And it wasn't really widely understood as being about the Messiah, but the language that Jesus uses helps them see that that, that was really truly what it was. So I'm going to read a, sh a short portion to you from Isaiah 53 just to help you kind of understand how Jesus distilled it. So uh, it's just sort of a, a smattering here. So here we go. This is what Isaiah 53 has to say about Jesus. He says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we were healed. And after he suffered, he will see the light of light and be satisfied. So that's just a portion of Isaiah 53 that I think is helpful to help us understand that Jesus was really quite aware that he was going to suffer. What that meant was a physical suffering and a spiritual and emotional suffering, but it didn't end there, folks, that there was um, a satisfaction, a light, a joy that came from him seeing people drawn to the Father. Well, as we look at these echoes of the Old Testament um, and of the reality of the new, the new kingdom that is upside down and different than what they expected, um, we get to talk a little bit about what service looks like for us. And here's a couple things that stood out to me in my study that I wanted to share with you about being a servant. Um, the first quote is this. Um, it says, to be a servant is to advance advance the interest of others, even at the sacrifice of our own. Okay, so advancing other people, and we have to sacrifice for it. And the second quote is from a theologian named Walter Weasel, and this is what he has to say, and I, I've just been thinking about this this whole week. He says, in the kingdom of God, humble service is the rule. Okay, it is the rule. And even the Son of Man is not exempt from it. All right, so this is what we see in this passage, that humble service is the rule, that it's the rule that we live by. And it's so important that even Jesus lives by it. And we see that backed up throughout, throughout the whole Bible. Um, but I, of course, immediately thought of Philippians 2, where, it, where Paul writes about Jesus, that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So we see those echoes of Jesus being a servant of all, of laying down his life, and certainly of serving people while he was on earth. I think um, <laughs> one of my favorite parts about this narrative in Mark 10 is, is actually what happens in Mark 11. Okay, so I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to tell you just a little bit about it. You can, you can go on your own time and just see what happens. But in Mark 11, the verses that follow this, there's an incredible story that you, many of you are aware of where Jesus, Jesus heals a blind man named Bartimaeus. And what I think is so important about the placement of Jesus doing this is that for me, I see it as Jesus living out what it means to be a servant. That in Mark 10, that he is 
teaching his disciples about what it means to lay down your life and to be a servant of all. And then he doesn't just teach them with his words, but he follows it up immediately with an action. And as he's going down the road to Jerusalem, anticipating his crucifixion and resurrection, he finds this man who's blind, who's a beggar, who's calling out in faith for healing, and he heals them, um, much to the disbelief of his disciples who want him to ignore the man, because obviously they still aren't quite there. (laughs) But it is just an example of Jesus serving the least of these, of um, restoring somebody who is poor, who's broken, who has nothing, and Jesus is using his power um, to bring life to somebody, somebody else, and Jesus is taking the lowest spot. Well, as I close out, I just have three kind of practical points that I wanted to close with. All right, number one, we see that Jesus served from an established identity, and what I, what I think that is, is it's, I, I see that Jesus is coming from a place of knowing that he is beloved. And I look back to the references in the New Testament of where he talks about taking the cup or of his own baptism, and I see this intimacy between him and the Father. So one example of that is when he's in the garden praying, and he knows that he's going to be crucified. This is what he prays. He says, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And then three years prior to that, at his baptism, um, God the Father says of him, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And these are just indicative of the relationship that you see between the Father and Son and the whole New Testament, that there is a sense of unity and love and love. And as Jesus is serving people, that that is the foundation of all of his ministry. And certainly we know that that is the invitation for us as well, that we are called to called to serve, to take the lowest spot, um, to love the least of these from that foundation of being beloved in Christ. Well, the second thing that I thought about was this little phrase that we talk about often, um, be careful what you ask for, (laughs) right? Um, Be careful what you ask for. And we know that James and John um, did a big ask, and it did not go well for them. (laughs) And um, What I see from this is, yes, that they were a bit rebuked, right? That Jesus used it as a teaching moment. Um, But even more than that, that it was an opportunity for a second chance. That we sometimes are not careful what we ask for with God. And sometimes I think there is perhaps a bit of a a rebuke, certainly a redirection. Um, But there's always an opportunity for a second chance when it comes to the grace of Jesus Christ. And... Um, It's just an opportunity for us to be reminded that this was not the last word for James and John, that they um, were rebuked and redirected and taught, um, and Jesus continued to model for them sacrifice and service, and eventually they did get it um, and were able to see some incredible things. And the last takeaway that I had um, was just a reminder of what we're talking about today, which is to take the lowest spot, that that is the invitation um, for all that follow Jesus, that we, we are challenged by him, by our Messiah, our suffering servant, to take the lowest spot. And so we all have places of influence in our life. Some of us, I know, are leaders um, in our community or in our businesses, but we all have influence. We have influence um, with our friends and with our family, in our workplaces, here at our church, in our neighborhoods. 
And we even have influence in places that we might not think about it, like at grocery store lines or when we're driving around town. Um, those are all places that we can choose to exercise our influence uh, in a positive way that makes other people's lives better. And I'll just leave you with this little closing story. So I was hanging out with a friend recently, and she was talking about um, a job that she did where people came to her um, in one of their hardest places in life, that they were going through some things, and she said it was basically one of their worst days when they came to see her. And she said to me, Angela, my favorite part of that job was that I got to make their day better. That when they came to me, they were at their lowest of lows, but my attitude, that the way that I could help them made their life a little bit better. And that's why I love doing that job. And I'm not gonna go into the details of what she did, but you guys, it was a really hard job. <laughs> um, she really did see people in tough circumstances. And she could have chosen to complain about that, but instead, she saw it as an opportunity to take the lowest spot, to encourage, do a hard job to encourage somebody else um, and to point them towards gratitude and life change. Well, today we're gonna close with three questions. Um, and I hope it's an opportunity for you to think about how you are beloved and how you can also choose to take the lowest spot. So question number one, where do you have the influence to make somebody's life better? Question number two, what is one thing that you can do this week to find the lowest spot? And question number three, how does knowing your identity in Christ help you to find the lowest spot.